Welcome to an exciting forum of alternative viewpoints and balanced ideas. This is Good Morning Canada with Nav and Nav. That's Nav C and Nav M. Confused? Don't be, because two halves always become one. Now join us for an energized hour of global viewpoints and shared ideas, only for you. Now, here are your hosts, Nav and Nav. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Good Morning Canada with Nav and Nav. I'm your host, Nav C. And I'm your host, Nav M. Welcome to another hour of Alternative Views. This show will help you rethink, reshape, and reform ongoing narratives. In this episode, we examine the evolution and spatial shift of condominium development in Toronto, Canada's largest housing market, and the location of a rapid take-up of condominium tenure and construction over the past 50 years. We review the policy framework that supported and regulated condominium growth and explore the implications of continued restructuring within the City of Toronto. Various factors, including neoliberal state policies, have played a definitive role in encouraging a term called condoization, which we'll explain later in the episode. And this equates to a complex network of economic development, finance and consumer culture, which have all gravitated towards condominium construction. Urban planning policies have been redirected towards high-density housing stock called condominiums in pursuit of centralised civic expansion. And this model of sustained growth towards the urban heartlands is highly reliant on leveraged capital investment as well as the changing attitudes of highly mobile young residents towards living within the urban core. And it's also promoted a process called gentrification which has transformed the character of Toronto's central business district. We also explore the myriad of changes which have occurred and their implications for social issues such as homelessness and the emergence of various forms of capitalist urbanization and restructuring policies for modern cities. So in terms of a structure for this episode, we'll cover several key areas. The first area is the phenomenon of condoization. How did this drastic change in the urban landscape come about in terms of its origin and the processes involved? And in the second main area, we tackle the overarching question, to what extent does condoization represent a shift towards privatized urban living? And in the final key area, uh, we focus on the housing crisis uh, and its origins and the, and the much debated loss of housing stock. And I'd like to emphasize at this point the, the importance of this section to the overall discussion because it's inextricably linked to the withdrawal of the entire public sector, federal, provincial and municipal, from the creation of social housing. And the reason I mention this is because often when we see marvels of modern civil engineering, such as condos and skyscrapers, our initial thoughts turn to human achievement and progress. But what we often miss and what we often don't realize is that there's always a cost to great progress. And more often than not, that cost is inevitably human. One person's progress is another man's demise. 
And we touch on some of these issues briefly in today's episode, but the real consequences of this form of social policy combined with spatial urbanism are so complex that we've had to separate it into a follow-on episode to today's uh, topic. However, the main message that we'd like to impart with the listeners today is that in today's contemporary society, what we perceive as natural forms of progress are rarely that. And they've actually been created by political design and structural changes. And also because some of the content in today's topic is is slightly rigid and um, a bit texty maybe and, and complex, we ask the listeners to show a little bit of patience and understanding. Because once you actually uh, understand that the, the reason for this request is that it's essential to understand the history of the current housing crisis first, because without this perspective, the follow-on episode would be difficult to understand. So let's start with a introduction. Over the past few decades, condominiums have become an increasingly popular choice for real estate property in Toronto because of their modern amenities and a multitude of personalized facilities. And these towering glass buildings have attracted an upwardly mobile urban generation, in particular the so-called millennial generation. And this is because the emphasis on lifestyle preference has weighed heavily on the younger generation's choice of living. Condominiums are located in prime downtown Toronto spots and they offer easy access to transits and shopping centres and have radically restructured the entire downtown neighbourhood in Toronto over the last five decades. And figures from Statistics Canada in 2018 show that 38% of Toronto condos are owned by people who don't actually live in them. And what this means is that they're actually kept vacant deliberately or they're rented out or they're used as a second property. And what these statistics also suggest is that Toronto, along with other major cities across Canada, is facing a unique struggle with housing affordability. Toronto is Canada's most popular city and investor-owned properties have contributed to rising condo prices and a crunch on affordable rental housing. Toronto has created very little purpose-built rental housing in the past 40 years, leading to an over-reliance on the secondary housing market for rental inventory. And in this case, this equates to condominiums. And the presence of a major housing bubble has led to a wildly inflated condo prices and subsequent rent increases. And research has shown that the city of Toronto shows that condo rents have increased by 30% between the years 2006 and 2018. Furthermore, over the past few decades, housing is primarily viewed now as an investment vehicle or an asset class rather than a place to live. And even more worrying is the fact that housing prices have decoupled from income brackets and are driven by access to capital which gives investors and speculators a clear advantage over average working Canadians. And what this implies is that the housing market is not dictated by supply or demand anymore. But the question has now become, for whom are we building? Similarly, in Vancouver, only 5% of properties are empty. 
And alarmingly, only 12% of families can afford to own a home in an environment where nearly half of condos are owned by investors. So what happened to the classic detached house, which was always a mainstay of town city living? To past generations, the single detached house represented a symbol of aspirational living, becoming a legitimate dream for swathes of middle class individuals. However, various factors have placed pressure on the average Canadian's ability to live in this type of dwelling, including rising house prices, the pressures of long commutes to work from the suburbs and an aging population. And it's interesting to note that in 2016, the most common dwelling type in Canada was still the single detached house, representing 54% of occupied private dwellings in Canada. But these figures are changing rapidly and the share of dwellings represented by apartments was highest in the census metropolitan areas or CMAs made up by Montreal, Vancouver and Quebec. And the CMA with the largest share of dwellings in high rise buildings, i.e. those with five or more stories, was actually Toronto. And what this showed is that the three in ten dwellings were in the apartment category. And essentially new construction trends of single detached houses and apartments follow business and population cycles very, very closely. So how did this shift to condoization come about? To answer this question, we must first address the question of what is a condominium? So at this point, I'll ask Navsi to explain this very important section. Thank you, Navem. So we will start with what is a condominium? or a condo. Condominiums make up a fast-growing form of housing ownership in cities and suburbs across the globe. This form of housing has already existed for many decades in other countries, but in Canada, condominiums have only recently become an overarching feature of urban planning and development. In many North American cities, the condo is associated with a particular form of style of housing, usually a tower and podium structure with wall-to-wall glass windows. However, the condominium is highly, is technically a form of tenure rather than a style of housing. In Canada, it was first introduced in British Columbia in the late 1960s through the Strata Title Act of 1966, and then shortly thereafter in many other provinces. Condominiums represent a type of double ownership uh, where individual units are owned and registered in the name of buyers along with shared ownership over residential common property. The idea of common property varies in form form and scope from lobbies, hallways, gardens, and elevators to streets, private roads, recreation facilities, and even golf courses. Their operation is made possible through a condominium corporation, a governing institution which is elected and responsible to the condo owners. These private arrangements allow individuals to own apartments in multi-unit buildings. Subsequently, this transforms the urban texture, uh, the urban tenure structure in a city's population from renters to a mix of homeowners with different levels of responsibility for maintenance. Condos not only diversify the housing stock, but create higher bonus densities for developers. 
in return for providing certain public benefits which promote the intensification of land use and the gentrification and resettlement of the inner city. Experts in urban geography, such as Alan J. Scott from, from UCLA, referred to this in his 2012 article um, entitled Emerging Cities of the Third Wave. He mentions the emergence of new paradigm of city buildings called the third wave, urbanization. This is where the spatial dynamics of city building and the urban ways of life transform from models of industrial production and expansion towards a cognitive e-cultural economy dominated by flows of information, ideas, finance, trade, and people. Also referred to as the globalization of interdependence, third-wave urbanization involves a spatial shift from the suburbs and urban distribution towards concentration, gentrification, and intensification, which brings with them profound changes in urban social life. In cities such as Toronto, these paradigm shifts are closely linked with the rise of condoization, which we will explain in more, which I will explain in more detail very shortly. Toronto's status as a global city means it is a getaway for international economic, cultural, and migration flows. It is also broad metropolitan region known as the GTA or the Greater Toronto Area, acting a pivotal urban centre with leading roles in Canada's financial business, arts and housing construction industries. In today's world of high finance, Toronto makes its place among those cities aspiring to represent the new metropolitan mainstream, which are eager to convey an image of open-mindedness, neoliberal, enlightened culture, consumerism and growth orientation. NAVEM will explore the phenomena of condoization in more detail shortly, but first I will explain how Toronto has adapted and transformed the Canadian housing market over the past five decades. We'll start with the development of Toronto as a city and region and its impact on the national market. So the Toronto region has undergone several phases of government restructuring and boundary changes. In 1953, the Municipality of Metropolitan Toronto, or Metro, was created, forming a metropolitan government for the old city of Toronto and other municipalities. During the 1970s, four regional municipal governments bordering the fringes of Metro Toronto were created. And then in 1998, Metro Toronto's upper and lower tier governments were amalgamated into one mega city of Toronto. The new megacity and the four regional municipalities surrounding it, which are Peel, York, Durham and Halton, are known locally as the Greater Toronto Area or the GTA. In 2011, the new amalgamated city of Toronto had a population of over 2.6 million people, representing 43% of the GTA's 6 million people. And the GTA is slightly larger than the official Toronto CMA, which is the Census Metropolitan Area, as defined by Statistics Canada. As the largest housing market in Canada, the GTA has experienced continuous growth since the 1950s. Its economy has undergone extensive restructuring from a Fordist industrial city based on an urban system to a post-Fordist 
global city linked by global supply chains and production networks, as well as networks of international finance and immigration flows. Within the context, condos have become a growing and integral ingredient of Toronto's housing stock. Condominiums started appearing in Toronto in the very late 1960s after the introduction of the Condominium Act in the province of Ontario in 1968. In 1981, there was 66,000 condominium units, both owned and preoccupied, across the Toronto CMA, representing roughly 2% of the housing stock. Since then, condos have increased to 18% of dwelling units in in 2011, which is about 359,000 units, including rental condos. Over the past five decades, uh, there have been three major waves of condominium development. The first phase of condo development was characterized by rapid growth in the early 1970s, followed by a slow decline due to the recession of the 1980s. In the second phase, the market rebound from the the mid-1980s crisis, reaching new peaks with the introduction of new luxury developments in Toronto as vacant lots throughout downtown Toronto were quickly converted to condominiums. However, this second condo boom was short-lived as as a result of deep global recession which affected Toronto in the early 1990s. The recent and the third condo boom began in the late 1990s, accelerating almost continuously to a record high in 2011. Another important trend of these development cycles is towards even larger projects. The larger buildings containing more than 250 units have typically been built in peak development years, including 1988 to 1990, and then again from 2005 to 2011. However, since the mid-2000s, the newer buildings have been characterized by structures with more than 350 units. That said, the larger population or projects have been noted for their shrinkage average unit in size, with internal square footage declining by around 5% between 2006 to 2011. Also, during the most recent period of rapid condo development, buildings which have adopted wall-to-wall glass panels have received increased scrutiny for the lack of energy efficiency and reports of shoddy workmanship. Now, in the next session, I will provide a brief uh, synopsis of the geography of condominium development by region. In order to place condo development in some type of perspective, the geographical distribution of uh, condos has been formed by a cumulative process according to each historical wave and construction development. When analyzing owner-occupied condos, housings across the entire Toronto CMA. The new city of Toronto contains the largest condo market in the CMA and condos make up up to 22% of total owner-occupied dwellings. Four additional nearby municipalities have also experienced extensive growth, um, like Mississauga, with a population of 830,000 people, and Brampton, which is um, roughly 600,000 people, and the fastest growing, and and it is among the fastest growing municipality in Canada. 
In addition, Markham, which is with, with a population of 260,000, and Richmond Hill, with 160,000 people, has also experienced rapid condominium development. Many critics have argued that predominant city projects like Toron- in Toronto, such as City Place and Regent Park, represent the colonialization and gentrification of valuable central city space under the guise of creating urban diversity and social balance, while simultaneously shifting the balance of power away from tenants and towards the condominium owners. And this theme of social balance in the private sector will now be explored in greater details by NAVM as he explores the power of dynamics created by condoization. I will now hand back to NAVM. Thank you, Navsi, for that concise account of the history of Toronto as a region and how condominiums establish their presence within the city. So in my next section, the question which I will attempt to address is, to what extent does condoization represent a shift towards privatized urban living? So firstly, what is condoization? It's a unique form of urban development which involves balancing the economic interests of private sector industry with the state and its new urban vision of promoting privatized residences. And it's set against a backdrop of emerging lifestyles and a new brand of consumerism. Political and economic interests are inextricably linked to urban intensification and real estate development in the city, with mortgage credit displacing industrial expansion as the primary driver of urban growth. And in the context of international finance and globalization, condoization has assumed the new role of industrialization in urban development. And within the context of Toronto, it's characterized by a post-Fordist, post-industrial restructuring of the city, which involves the specialized use of finance, deindustrialization, and gentrification. And it's important to note that Condoization involves a shift towards new forms of private urban living or private urban governance and private property rights. This is because condo tenure involves the formation of private clubs in which those who can pay the membership fees have a say in the internal governance of commonly held lands while adopting new responsibilities. And what this means is that there's a a huge shift away from landlords and municipalities who have traditionally been involved in the upkeep and provision of services. And it infers a transfer of liability towards condo owners from landlords and municipalities. And these are key points to bear in mind. And also there are several factors which have accelerated condoization in the Toronto region, especially in the downtown area. And the first is economic restructuring of the region marked by deindustrialization and the rise of what's been referred to as the fire industries. Uh, and that means F-I-R-E, fire, which stands for financial services, insurance and real estate. And most of the jobs in these industries are located in the downtown area, as well as similar occupations in the fields such as culture, education and recreation. And what this means is that the demand for intermediate housing has been taken up by 
condo development and gentrification of older housing stock within the city. And this can be attributed to the decline of primary and secondary manufacturing, which implies that blue-collar labour has shifted towards the construction industry, in particular condo development. The relevance of condominium housing construction to the Toronto region means that both the construction and fire industries are highly dependent on the continued growth of the condo sector. And this over-reliance on, a, on an ever-expanding condominium growth model raises questions about the real origins of the condo boom. In other words, was it really about planning and policy directives? Or was it simply about pro- profit motives from the property developers? And the reason we say this is that condominium development has essentially become a substitute for rental units. Condos have filled the demise of purpose-built rental housing construction, which has all but vanished since the early 1990s. And the target client for many condominiums has included those working downtown or close to public transportation. And the introduction of condominium legislation coupled with structural changes to land taxation and housing programs in the mid-1970s encouraged developers to redirect capital away from building rental buildings and towards condominiums. So new condo legislation has provided developers with the opportunity to sell new condos to the same people which were previously renting the new units but with much larger and more immediate profits. And this has been particularly true since the late 1990s as interest rates declined and credit became more accessible. And this allowed speculators and investors to step in and buy multiple units to take advantage of capital gains. And many of the resulting condos are then rented out, often to those same people in uh, within the same demographic group uh, groups. And... This means that developers are essentially building rental uh, units, but they're registering them as condos. And the developers were quick to realize that the condo buyer and those individuals who prefer to rent are actually from the same demographic groups. And what they are characterized by is similar income, except the one makes the decision to own and the other wants to, does not want to be tied down to a mortgage. In other words, the latter group specifically wants to rent because they wish to retain the benefits of the condo lifestyle. So we're just coming up to a short break now and there'll be much more to come in the next segment. We'll see you very shortly. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. A brave heart is anyone with the courage to be of service to others. If you have that courage, then Brave Hearts Radio with Brian Reinbold is for you. Even if you aren't yet, you'll want to still tune in to get inspired, create your own story to share, and change your life for the better. Listen to the stories of service and courage shared by amazing guests and your input too. Listen for Brave Hearts Radio, Mondays at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Remember, doing good anywhere does good everywhere. 
Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency Podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Planning for college? Tune in to Getting In, a college coach conversation for tips, techniques, and insider perspectives. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton, a former admissions officer at the University of Pennsylvania and featuring her fellow admissions and college finance experts from Bright Horizons College Coach. The show shares what colleges are really looking for and how to highlight your hard-won achievements for the best chance at success. New episodes air every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Good Morning Canada with Nav and Nav. To find out more about us and the ideas behind our show, visit our website at gmc-radio.com. That's gmc-radio.com. Now, back to Good Morning Canada. Welcome back. You're listening to Good Morning Canada with Nav and Nav. It's great to have your company. So in the last section, we were discussing the intricacies involved in condominium development. And now in this section, we'll discuss how this all comes together in terms of what's the significance. So we're trying to make some sense of it because uh, some of those concepts were a little bit complex um, and a bit difficult to understand um, from from the outset. So the most immediate implication that we see is that Toronto's declining housing affordability and rental supply can be attributed directly to the model of urban development over the past few decades known as condoization. And condoization has set a new trend towards privatized forms of home ownership. And this is indicative of wholesale government disinvestment in the housing market and the adoption of city creation policies, which are underwritten by the commitment of central banks to low interest rates and this point of government disinvestment is something that we'll keep coming back to and this this new model is primarily driven by speculative investment in the real estate market and it's replaced an industrial mode of urban growth and what's happened is that it's been replaced with one based on complex forms of asset-based debt primarily mortgage debt and as a major player in North America's condominium market, this highly specialized urban model became central to Toronto's reurbanization strategy in the late 1990s due to federal disinvestment in social housing during this period. And according to Canadian census figures from 2016, this approach to urban development has had a significant impact on the local rental market, where 86% of all dwellings added to the supply in Toronto between 2006 and 2016 have been in the form of privately owned units in specifically high-rise developments with more than five storeys. And this is a key point that purpose-built rental construction has been non-existent in 
and virtually all new rental units in Toronto are governed purely by profit maximization and not social benefit. Secondly, homeowners and speculative investors are free to leave their units vacant or pursue alternative revenue revenue sources, such as short-term renting. And what this does is it avoids responsibility towards the Ontario Residential Tenancies Act. Condoization has also sought to financialize existing rental stock via vacancy decontrol policies. And these were introduced by the Ontario government in 1997, which essentially eliminated restrictions on rent increases between tenants. But within a few years, average rents for one and two bedroom apartments in Toronto jumped by 20% in the two years following the vacancy decontrol. And this essentially predicted the affordability crisis we see today. And the aforementioned policies created the political and economic foundation to financialize and commodify and gentrify Toronto's inner city rental market. And one outcome has been short-term rental platforms, which have helped reinforce the dynamics of this new cultural paradigm. And these are platforms such as Airbnb, which are an effective tool for extending access to the local rental market. So moving on, let's now take a closer look at the so-called housing crisis and its origins and the much-discussed loss of housing stock, which is, is a recurring theme which we'll keep coming back to. So the example of Airbnb provides a case in point on how the short-term rental market in Toronto has been squeezed significantly in the past five years in the pursuit of reshaping and redefining cultural tourism. In Canada, the expansion of the short-term rental industry has has been most apparent and controversial in its three largest cities, Toronto, Montreal and Vancouver, where short-term rentals are increasingly becoming a go-to option due to their relative affordability. But this restructuring of the rental market, such as uh, Airbnb, is indicative of, of a much wider malaise in, in many parts of Canada, including metro cities such as Toronto and Vancouver, because entire regions have experienced a full-blown housing crisis, a situation in which increasing numbers of people are inadequately accommodated to in, due to unsuitable housing. And since the early 80s, the supply of low-income housing has been drastically reduced. And this loss of low-income dwellings can be attributed partly to the slow rate of annual replacement, such as conversion, abandonment, or uh, demolition. But this does not explain the full picture or take into account prominent structural factors. So from the end of the Great Depression in 1933 until 1980, the federal government was the primary source of direct subsidies for the construction and maintenance of low-income housing. However, since 1980, federal support for subsidized housing as well as the development of new low-income housing has essentially disappeared. And that's because as a nation, Canada lacks a federal housing strategy and federal funds for social housing have been in decline for many years. And although many of Toronto's SROs or single residency occupancy were destroyed during the urban renewal of the 1960s, SROs still remain in Vancouver as a source of cheap lodging for transient workers. And this is a marked difference from the way Ontario 
has managed its housing stock. And as the housing crisis worsens, there's been a wholesale failure to replace SRO housing. Traditionally, SRO has been a primary source of housing for the elderly, the less well-off, for seasonally employed workers and for chronically disabled people. And meanwhile, although critics of SROs argue that these establishments are little more than outdated flop houses in serious disrepair, what this underlines is that there is a need for more housing of uh, a similar kind of stock and, and in a much more permanent way. But simply eliminating this form of housing is arguably the wrong way to go about things because it places an already vulnerable po- uh, population at immediate risk of homelessness. So does this mean that what we experience is, is not a housing problem after all? Well, firstly, it's worth noting that there is no physical housing shortage. For example, a report by Point Two Homes in 2019 estimated that there were 1.34 million empty homes in Toronto based on a 2016 uh, data package from Statistics Canada. And this represented almost 9% of the total dwelling stock in the market. So by all accounts, these properties have not been abandoned but rather their owners, domestic or foreign, make use of them as second dwellings or investment properties. And they can afford to leave these unoccupied for most of the time. And from this perspective, the housing crisis can be viewed as a symptom of the growing mismatch between wages and salaries generated in the economy and prices demanded in the housing market. And that said, one major reason for the the wage price gap in Toronto is the fact that the housing market is no longer strictly local because almost 40% of high-end condominiums in Toronto are foreign-owned. And this is largely because the world views Canada as an economically and politically stable destination for investment purposes. But if the so-called housing crisis has little to do with housing, and it's also true that the income price crunch is caused by factors of globalization and capital inflows, how then are we pursuing such a highly aggressive and competitive market? So the next point is that there's also a phenomenon called land grabbing, which needs to be mentioned because this refers to the long-term acquisition of land by lease or outright purchase and this causes market imbalances between rich and poor sectors of the economy and it points to a significant land-based conflict between increasingly globally wealth consumers who control vast majority of economic resources and the theory draws parallels between the the foreign acquisition of land and housing in Toronto, Vancouver and other metro cities and leads directly to the path of hollowed out neighborhoods that we've seen all all over the GTA, the creation of ghost towns and ultimately a rising number of business failures due to skyrocketing rents and taxes. So with all this information, where, where does all this lead? Firstly, we should be clear that the housing crisis cannot be solved by approaching it as a question of purely housing and neither can economic growth or the hope of higher incomes be relied upon to fix the problem. While Canadians with good-paying jobs have enjoyed higher purchasing power since the 2008 financial crisis, this hides the long-term trends of stagnation and declining wages across Canada. 
In fact, inflation-adjusted wages in 2013 were almost identical to wages in 1975 at just over $10 an hour when converted to $2013. But this is not the case with housing because since 1975, housing costs in poorer communities have outstripped other um, sectors in all proportions. And, And this is offset against a rising income gap such as that on a national level. So, in effect, globalization has widened the the local wealth gap, exacerbating tensions between two sectors of Toronto's population with vastly different stakes in the the real estate environment. So, let's look at this from a different perspective. How did we get here? What are the origins of of Canada's housing crisis? Well, it's essential to understand the history of the current housing crisis because without this perspective, it's difficult to recognize what's currently happening and what should be done to resolve the the imbalances between federal and private sectors. So since 2008, the Canadian financial system has rewarded itself on its celebrated position that Canada was the only G7 country in the financial crisis where there were no banking failures or recourse to state funds. And we've seen 10 years of housing price explosion and 10 years of low inflation and low interest rates. But upon further examination, many Canadian cities are still in crisis more than 10 years after the 2008 crisis. And in this next section, we provide an account of the roots of the urban housing crisis and the pathways which have emanated from it. Firstly, let's look at this infamous housing bubble. Average house prices have increased by 80% Canada-wide since the bottoming out of the financial crisis in 2009. And house prices have more than doubled in Vancouver and Toronto based on Canadian Real Estate Association figures. And in Canada, housing prices have been driven higher mainly because of land depreciation, which means that the accompanying structures built on land compromise only a small percentage of the value of the property itself. Meanwhile, as real estate prices have exploded, wage growth has been stubbornly lackluster. Between 2008 and 2017, nominal median wage has gone up only 22% Canada-wide and 20% in the provinces of Ontario and BC. But when adjusted for inflation, again, we see a different picture. This is less than one one percentage point per year in real growth. Furthermore, the indebtedness of uh, Canadian households ha- has risen by a huge amount and, and it's been doing so steadily since the 2008 crisis from 150% of disposable income in 2008 to 170% uh, in uh, 2019, f- according to 2019 figures. So let's now look at housing wealth, which is now an astounding 430% of disposable income in January 2018. And this is the stark reality of the housing crisis that we see today. It's literally created a wealth for one set of Canadians and for uh, foreign property owners, most of them who are already wealthy, while making simple existing for another set, in particular the urban poor, increasingly difficult. House price appreciation has turned many working people into millionaires, albeit on paper through price appreciation uh, or price inflation, but at the same time it's beggared legions of mainly unskilled workers into an army of renters. While there are many real estate 
rags to riches stories, the underlying point here is not to become uh, mesmerized by abstract statistics, but to see how runaway housing markets affect real people and real lives. And in addition, while property prices and debt have accelerated, so have increases in rent for tenants in in many cities, especially those who have been burdened, um, such as the working class who are unable to buy into the property market. And in the next section, we attempt to show that the loss of short-term housing stock was certainly no accident. Although the Canadian housing market has clearly been in bubble territory for more than a decade, the real focus of property appreciation should be on the impact on working class Canadians such as blue collar workers. And this period of analysis extends much further than 10 years. The starting point for the current expansion in Canadian mortgage debt and house price rises stems from the era of stable low inflation and and low interest rates during the the late 1990s. This preceded the 2008 financial crisis and marked the beginnings of the era of cheap credit. In 1993, the last federal budget tabled by Brian Mulroney's progressive conservative government ended all new federal funding for social housing construction outside of First Nation reserves. And this, again, is the theme that we keep referring to, that the lack of federal funding for social housing. The federal government simply abandoned its responsibility to create new social housing. And this was a profound change in stance from previous decades where the federal government helped finance around 20,000 units of social housing per year. And with the sudden imposition of social housing austerity, the the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation, CMHC, shifted from being a home builder to being a mortgage insurer. This major shift away from direct and indirect public provision of social housing helped to cement long-term economic and cultural pressures towards home ownership. And with this move, the federal government... uh, not only accelerated the transformation of housing from human necessity into investment goods, but it supplied it was supplied almost exclusively by the private sector. And although Canada was governed by a market-orientated conservative regime under Brian Mulroney, it wasn't until 1993 under Jean Chrétien. Uh, the Liberal administration in 1993 that made the biggest strides in transforming the Canadian state towards neoliberalism and a near-permanent state of austerity. And interest rates had fallen sharply since peaking in the early 1980s. The, The federal government had officially relinquished its national housing commitments and new policies from the CMHC including increased mortgage protection and significantly lower down payments from 20% down to 5%. These were all driving factors in creating the perfect environment for the beginning of a long housing boom. And what we've seen is that the early boom years were characterized by relative affordability. And it was during this time that housing became an investment asset, or some observers have described it as a financial weapon. It transformed into a major investment asset. And as interest rates fell sharply, house prices slowly recovered from their 1990s recessionary lows. And this was a clear political and social bias towards home ownership, driven by uh, fiscal contraction and monetary expansion. 
which accompanied long-standing policies at provincial and city level. And the outcome of all of these developments was a complex set of economic, legal and social factors that ultimately set the stage for the current affordability crisis that we see today across major cities in Canada. And it's within these structures that we begin to visualize the power imbalances which have evolved over the past decade. And in the immediate aftermath of the 2008 global financial crisis, which was triggered by the collapse of Lehman Brothers, the Bank of Canada participated in an internationally cohorted effort by many central banks to stabilize the global financial system. And Stephen Harper's government pursued a very aggressive form of fiscal stimulus, uh, which included substantial social housing investment. But the inevitable trend was always towards structural austerity, which it did uh, and returned to by the 2010s. So let's carry out a review of what we've discussed because some of these are very, very intricate and uh, complex issues. Let's begin by looking at two key markers. The spending reduction initiatives of the early 1990s when the PC government cancelled national housing program. And this, com this comprised of the assisted rental program and the Canada rental supply program. They transferred the responsibility of housing policy to the provinces and mu municipalities. In 1997, the government of Mike Harris, who was the Premier of Ontario between 1995 and 2002, repealed the Rent Control Act of 1992, and this cut social assistance rates by almost 30%. And it was these two decisions alone which became the trigger, which began the end of housing security for many working class people and low-income renters, especially in Toronto, where rents were already very expensive. And with less low-income housing available, the, the relative price of remaining units has risen dramatically, so much so that the number of people who pay a disproportionate share of their income for housing costs has risen. And by all accounts, 30% of one person's income is generally viewed by economists as the maximum one should pay for housing. However, since the Ontario Progressive Conservatives left office in 2003, the average cost of a one-bedroom apartment has risen from $950 to $2,100 a month, making many working-class people in Toronto uh, spending between 60 and 70% of their incomes on rent. And since the introduction of condominiums to Canada roughly 50 years ago, the GTA has been quick to adopt this new form of housing with figures now approaching 360,000 dwellings. Condoization has become the dominant guiding principle around which Toronto's economic and cultural development has been structured. The significance of condominium developments for Toronto's economy has been linked to the following points. The growing power of condo developers, the increased dependence on the private sector for public benefits, and the rise of condominium tenure and, and private governance in matters of everyday life. And what we see is that the phenomenon of condoization is no mere accident. It's not being dictated by market forces. There have been a slew of government policies at federal and provincial and municipal level, and they've all had a decisive role in facilitating the rise of condo units across the GTA. And 
Furthermore, there have been changes in consumer preferences. There have been a surge in demand for home ownership and a greater appreciation for living near cultural amenities and aspirations to live downtown and near the public transport system in Toronto. So what we see is that condoization is transforming the city's social and cultural landscape, redirecting investment patterns. And the downtown condominiums also challenge existing ideas surrounding diversity and promote a sense of gentrification, which is not to everyone's taste. So let's wrap up with some concluding remarks. What we see is that Toronto stands at a crossroads with respect to this terminology referred to as condoization because firstly the city of Toronto represents a poster child for the third wave of urbanization but there are similar intentions from the effects of deindustrializing and financializing the city and this can be seen through the looking glass of a tale of two cities and this context we're referring to Manhattan New York City where the homeless shelters are full and the luxury skyscrapers are vacant According to the New York Times, almost half of Manhattan's luxury condo units, which came onto the market during the past five years, remain unsold. The answers to the overriding question, what happened here, can be traced back to the same course of events which we discussed earlier, a form um, uh, a, a replay of Toronto's condominium experience, specifically a withdrawal of federal funds from uh, subsidized housing and a failure to replace SRO housing, which were lost to conversion, gentrification and urban renewal. And the context and underlying causes are exactly the same, are, are exactly the same. But at the heart of this problem is a fundamental issue. New York was making the wrong type of housing. And the interesting point is that it's not just New York facing a real estate implosion because London, UK has experienced similar processes over the last 10 years. And this has been even more accelerated by Brexit. Similarly, other global metro cities are experiencing similar problems such as Los Angeles, Seattle and San Francisco. And this decline of suitable housing supply in the US has been well documented by leading economists over the past decade. It explains why Americans are less likely to move, why social mobility has declined, why regional inequality has increased, why wealth inequality has expanded, and why certain neighbourhoods have now become much, much um, high poverty and and, uh, suffer from worse, worse health. And since 2010, the past decade has been defined by the clash of two cultures, rampant luxury home building against the decline of middle class home construction. And from the brief case analysis of Manhattan condominiums, it would appear that the city of Toronto has an opportunity to learn from the mistakes of its East Coast rival. But sadly, a fitting quotation comes to mind, which is that those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And so it would seem that Toronto has been blinded by the looking glass of its condominium towers. So that's all we have time for in today's episode. Many thanks for listening to Good Morning Canada with Nav and Nav. We really appreciated your company. To contact us, go online at gmc-radio.com. And if there are any issues which you'd like to discuss 
or any feedback, you can email us at info at gmc-radio.com. Connect for our social channels, Facebook, Instagram. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 noon Eastern. Thank you very much. See you then. Thank you for listening to Good Morning Canada. Please join NAVC and NAVM for another great program next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time and 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you soon.